Now, I'm not an expressively, overly emotional guy. Um, doesn't mean I'm not physically emotional. Um, when there are times during worship, if there are songs that resonate with my history and what God has done for me, the tears are going to come. It's going to manifest itself that way. Uh, my kids know it. Um, when we're watching, when we've been watching movies when they were young, there would be certain uh, movies when music would start playing and the and the, the drama was really intense. You could start seeing the tears come to my eyes. So I can be that way. One of the times it still exists, though, even though the kids are gone, is when Andrea and I are watching a movie, and especially a love story that's got a really good backstory. You really get connected to the characters. You get to know a little bit about the man and the woman who are at the heart of the story. And then, as the movie unfolds, you see how their love for one another is manifested, how it gets expressed in their words and their actions. And when those certain parts of the movie come, Andrea can look over and she can see the tears in my eyes. We were watching Persuasion the other night, one of those Jane Austen movie remakes. And sure enough, she looks over and I'm, I'm dabbing my eyes. <laughs> But Austin wrote fiction, and true love stories can have an even more profound effect on our souls, even if the tears don't come, because there's something visceral and real about it. We can relate to it. One of those love stories is John and Abigail Adams. If you know any of your American history, you know this. Their backstory was interesting because during their courtship, John was really conflicted. He did not know if he could really go through and act upon his affection for Abigail because he did not like her dad. <laughs> he could not imagine marrying, and this guy was a minister, and he could not imagine marrying into a family led by a man he so severely disliked. But over time, his affection for Abigail overwhelmed him, and his view of his potential father-in-law changed and they grew in love, and they got married. They were married for 57 years. A marriage of integrity, strength of character, devotion to one another, devotion to country. But during that time, they were separated, often for years at a time, by the Atlantic Ocean and by John's responsibilities in the government. Yet they maintained the depth of their affection. They maintained the expression of their affection by writing over 1,300 letters to each other. I bet there's a lot of people in this room that haven't written one letter to the person they love. These people wrote over 1,300 letters. And in them, when you read them, they give expression to the deep affection, devotion, respect, admiration. They're longing to be with one another. Even their disappointments and anger with one another when they're upset with, one, with what the other one did. Well, Psalm 116 is in many ways also a biography of a love story. In it, as we read it, we're going to see a backstory of the, of the people involved. We're going to learn more about the people that are at the center of the story. And then we're going to see at the back end of the psalm how their love unfolds towards one another, how they express it in words and actions. So please, 116 let me read this love story between the writer of the psalm and God, his father. First, the backstory, the first four verses. It starts out like any love story should. I love the Lord 
because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. See, the snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. That's the backstory. Now, what do we learn about the two people at the heart of this love story? It starts out in verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. So return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. That's who they are. And now, how do they express their love towards one another? Beginning in verse 9. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You've loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Lord, you have crafted an amazing love story for us. You've demonstrated your love, whether we see it or not, you've demonstrated your deep love for us. I pray that Christ may dwell in our hearts this morning so that through him, faith may dwell, that we may be rooted and grounded in your love and may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we, as a body of Christ, may be filled with all your fullness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a little background about this psalm. There is not, even though we think there might be, there is not absolute certainty about either the author or the specific circumstances that he's recounting in this psalm. Many theologians, rightly so, and you can understand why, believe it's written by David, King David. And he did that as, as, a, as a response, as a memory of maybe some of the physical danger that he experienced when either Saul or Absalom were after him, were looking to slay him because they were afraid of him. But the fact is we don't know for sure. And we don't even know, even if it was David, that this is physical danger that he felt himself under. Maybe instead of being chased by an enemy... He was being chased by his conscience. He was in desperate spiritual danger, and he felt in a very real, visceral way suffocating distress and anguish 
over how his sins of adultery and murder had ultimately culminated in the death of his newborn son. What depth of regret, if that's the case, he would have been feeling. And he could have well felt like death was encompassing. The pangs of Sheol were creeping in on him. If you've ever experienced soul regret and remorse over sin and its consequences, you can find your place in this psalm, right? I'm glad, in a way, there's uncertainty about the author and the circumstances because I can find myself in this psalm much more easily. And that, if you think about it, is the purpose of the psalms. They were written by men who experienced real suffering and real trial, and out of that they expressed their affection for God, their trials. We can find ourselves in this psalm. We don't have to have been through physical danger. Now, one thing we do know about this psalm, though, and this is, this is important, we actually lived this out in our worship time. These, this psalm was one of six psalms that were referred to as the Egyptian halal, hallelujah. We sang hallelujah earlier, right? And so they were songs of praise. And they were used by Jesus. They were used by the early uh, Jewish church synagogues in the Passover service. So before the Passover meal, they would sing the, uh, Psalm 113 and Psalm 114, and then following the meal, the final four. So it is highly, highly, highly likely that Jesus and his disciples went through the halal, including Psalm 116, at the Last Supper before Jesus was crucified. They were singing songs of praise and thanksgiving for God having delivered the nation of Israel out of the bonds of slavery. We read that in verse 16. You have loosed my bonds. That's why this Psalm 116 was part of the halal. They didn't just look back, though, as they were praising. They weren't just remembering what God had done. They were singing and praising God for what he had promised, in anticipation of the coming Messiah. They looked back, they looked forward, they praised and thanked God. This psalm was profoundly significant for Jesus, his disciples, Paul, the early church. And if it was for them, it's meant for us as well. So to look into the psalm, I want to to kind of separate it into three sections, just as I read it earlier. In the beginning, we're going to look at the first four verses where he shares his memories, his backstory, if you will, of his love for God. Memories that point away from himself and to the object of his love. And then we're going to look at the next four verses where he reflects both on what is so amazing about this God who loves him and what is so utterly unamazing about himself. And then the last 11 verses, we're going to look at how did these people in this love story express their love towards one another. And we're going to see as we do that, that at the root of, their express, of his expressions of love towards God is really nothing more than a response, nothing more than a response to God's love for him. So, memories of what God has done. You know, sometimes when, when you read scripture, at least for me, one word will jump out at the page. And you know, it's often not 
one of these deep theological words, sanctification or redemption. Those are important words in propitiation. Those are all great. Sometimes they're small words like but. The but of Ephesians. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. The but. We were, uh, our small group this past week were going through Genesis and we were in uh, the flood story. And um, chapter 8 had another one of those words. Earth was flooded. One family remained on an ark. Chapter 8 starts out, but God remembered Noah. God remembered this man. He hadn't forgotten him. How comforting that would be for, for Noah to know that the God of creation remembered him. Well, we've got another one of those words here in Psalm 116. It jumped off the page at me, not once, but twice. I hope it did for you as well. Verse 1, I love the Lord because. That's a hinge word. That's a critically important word for us this morning. I love the Lord because. He follows that up in verse 2. Because he inclined his ear to me. Got to hold fast to that word. It's deeply theological. We need to do that because if we're not careful, we're going to be tempted, tempted later on in this service to put the emphasis on what we have to do in showing our love to God as opposed to putting the emphasis on what God has done already and continues to do for us. The psalmist loves God because the creator of the universe heard his cries for mercy. The psalmist will call on God only because, as long as he lives only because God himself first bent down to hear his cry. See, this psalm is not primarily about man's love for God, but God's love for man. Any love we have for God finds its source, its genesis in God's love for us. So God heard this man's prayer when he literally, literally was at the end of his rope, completely and utterly helpless. Physically or spiritually, he thought he was going to die. He was closer to death than he was to life. And so in desperation, he cries out to the only one he knows can actually help him. Didn't have time to run to the temple. Didn't have time to grab a priest and get out the scrolls and have him read to him lay hands on him, he had to go directly to God, either at the top of his lungs or simply in his heart. It was a raw plea from a dying man to an omnipotent God. And once he knew, once he knew that God had heard his plea for help, can you imagine? Can you imagine the depth? He was close to death. Can you imagine the depth of affection that this man felt and gratitude towards God? I dare say it's not an exaggeration that he would not have lived one day without remembering and being grateful for what God had done for him. It would be forever etched in his mind. That's why this is one of the Thanksgiving Psalms. He was grateful to God for all that he had done. Gratitude would mark this man's life for the rest of his days. And that should be the case for any of us who have been delivered 
by God. Now, as I said at the beginning, Psalm 116 could refer to either physical or spiritual danger. If, though, it is, and it's possible, very possible, that it's a biography of a man in mortal physical danger, most of us will never be able to relate to that. Praise God. It's the kindness of the Lord. But there are some people who can. A while ago, I was talking with a man who loves Jesus. Loves Jesus deeply. And there was a time in his life that he loved Jesus, but was in rebellion against Jesus. He had been kicked out of countless rehab facilities, and he was down to his last straw. There was only one place that would accept him. And so he went out of desperation. He felt anguish in his soul, and so he went. But what they did is they stuck him in the basement, in a windowless room, lonely, no friends, bored, and tempted every moment of the day to return to the only thing that had ever brought him what he thought at that time was real peace. One night he gave in to the temptation. So he went outside, and as the drug deal was going down, the drug deal went south real fast, and he saw it happening. He felt it was not going the right direction, and so he did the only thing he knew to do, which was to run. He ran from the scene. But he couldn't outrun the bullet. He dropped to the ground, and he was certain he was going to die. Before waking up in the hospital, the last thing he remembers is laying on the pavement. Couldn't move. He couldn't move, but he felt the blood oozing out of his back where the bullet had entered. Air was leaving his lungs. Whatever, though, he had left in his lungs, he cried out at the top of his voice, Jesus, Jesus, save me. That's all he said. Wasn't deeply theological, is it? It's not like the prayer that, that, uh, that I read. It was straight to the point. It wasn't long. It was a desperate cry for mercy from a helpless man to a God he knew to be ultimately, infinitely merciful. By the grace of God, the cops heard that cry of desperation, got to him, and in the nick of time, literally in a matter of minutes, got into the hospital and saved his life. Psalm 116, is it a surprise? Psalm 116 is intimately personal to this man. He can't hear it or recite it without deep emotion overwhelming him. But as he was telling me this story, I could tell it wasn't emotion that was rooted in the fact that he was saved out of a desperate situation. That wasn't what, what hit his heart. That wasn't what was impressed upon his soul. What impressed him and drove him to emotion and gratitude was an awareness and a reminder of the great love of God to hear him and save him. That's what was prominent in his mind. 
God always stands ready to hear our desperate cries, to bend down and answer our pleas for mercy, no matter what we've done, no matter what situation we're in, whether it's physical danger, financial stress, no matter if we've grievously sinned for the first time or the 77th time, God stands ready to hear our cries. We have no recourse when we're in anguish and distress, but to go to a God who is merciful and loves us. But a caution. At the same time, we can't presume upon God's love. He's patient and merciful, long-suffering. But there's a time when our opportunity to cry out to God passes and it's too late. That man that I was with shared with me Sadly, that he thought he had waited too long to cry out to God. Lesson for us is the time to cry out is now. Even if you think you're strong, but you haven't put your trust in Christ, you're more in a condition like that man laying in the street than you think you are. So don't wait. Today is the day to put your trust in Christ. So there's the backstory. That's, that's what happened that drove this man to, to love the Lord. A memory of a desperate situation, crying out to a God who he knew would respond. And when those cries are answered, deep love wells up within us to live a life in the response. And I'm sure that ever since God delivered that man he had plenty of time to reflect on that circumstance. Not just that God saved him, just like the man that I talked to, but more meaningfully, who is this God that saved him? What is he like? What kind of God would reach down when he was totally helpless, lying on his back, needy? And actually, more than that, there really is nothing in him that would cause God to do this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, especially if this is a, a psalm written by David. Murder and adultery? No, he didn't. He wasn't deserving of God's mercy. Yet look in verse 5 how this, this man describes the object of his love. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. He's gracious and righteous and merciful. We could spend weeks talking about that. I'm going to do more, only a fly over this. Isaac did such an incredible job, really, in, in addressing these attributes of God that that's all I'm going to do. If you haven't listened to his messages, do it. He reminded us that mercy is at the core, the very heart of who God is. It defines him, it directs him, it motivates every one of his actions. Yet at the same time, he doesn't lose his righteousness. He's able, amazingly, to be righteous and merciful simultaneously. His mercy is just, his righteousness is merciful. What else, though, do we know besides grace, righteousness, and mercy about this God? Well, both, I want to point out only two briefly. Both are found in verse 7. He writes, 
Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Rest and bounty are found in God. He can, this man can be restful because God has been faithful. We too can be restful because God has been faithful to us. You know, as, as I was in the psalm this week, it seems to imply, does it not, that even after God rescued him, this man continued to wrestle with restlessness. It wasn't once and done. And I think we can all relate to that. Even if you've been walking with Christ for decades, you know what a restless soul is like. We're anxious, lying in bed at night with hundreds of thoughts running through our mind, waking up in the morning before our feet hit the floor. We've got a to-do list that paralyzes us. We have concerns over wayward children. Maybe there's not enough money. We have health concerns. There's political chaos. There's countries being invaded. Every one of us, Christian or not, can empathize with this man. But here's our antidote. This man wrote about finding rest in God a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene. They had a promise of a Messiah. 2,000 years later after Jesus, we had the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is our rest. If you've trusted in Christ, your rest is in knowing that your greatest problem, the thing you should have the most anxiety over, has already been dealt with once and for all. Your sins have been forgiven. You won't pay for them. No guilt to unsettle your soul. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus to weigh you down. You can live with peace in your soul. And if it escapes you, you can return to it. That's rest. Final attribute of God. The Lord has dealt bountifully with him. God is generous. He's merciful, that's at the heart, but he is also uber generous towards us. And that doesn't mean financial, material security. We know that. We sometimes can think people are are blessed and God is generous towards them based on what they have, but no, that's not at the core of God's generosity. We don't have time to list all the ways. God's generosity is infinite. We have infinite expressions of it. Here's just a few, though. We have a personal relationship with God. That's That's what differentiates Christianity from every other religion. It is a personal affection. I love the Lord. You don't love distant people. You love people that you are close to. He's always available to us. He hears our cries. We have the Holy Spirit to help us live a life of righteousness. We have been adopted by a loving father into a family of God. And we are co-heirs with Christ. What a generous God. We have partnership in this local expression of the body of Christ to help us run the race that's been set before us. 
We have a promise that we'll never lose our salvation. Everything we need for life and godliness is in Jesus. God has been so, so generous to us. That's the character of one person in this love story. What about the man himself? What does the psalm say about this man in need? What do we know about him? Well, (laughs) man is simply simple. That's it. That's what we learned about this man. He's low and he's simple. The Lord preserves the simple. That is me. That defines me. And that defines you. We are simple people. Yes, we are loved. We are counted righteous in Christ. But we are simply simple. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That's what Kenny was mentioning earlier. A simple person is one who, whether you're a Christian or not, a simple person is one who lives their life outside of the wisdom, the security, the hope, and the promises that are found in the word of God. We become simple when we move away from the promises of God's word. Making decisions, living life in opposition to or apart from the word of God makes us simple. But this is the hope we have. With this, with the word of God, we have the promise to become wise. God preserves us, simple people, through his word. We ignore it at our own risk. So that's the character of God and the psalmist, God and us. Now, how do they express their love towards one another? We know love. Love is more than a splendid thing. Love is way more than a feeling. Love manifests itself in specific, observable ways in the life of someone who says they love God. That's how this psalm starts out. I love the Lord. This is an intense, this is one thing I really want us to walk away from this morning, with this morning, is is asking ourselves the question, Do I love the Lord? Or are they just words that roll off of our lips? John, 1 John 4 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Husbands, if you say you love your wife, but if, when you're away from her and with your, with your neighbors or coworkers and you're speaking ill of her, in that moment, you're not loving your wife. So there are very specific ways that we should be testing our lives to see if we do love, love the Lord. But before we jump to them, I want to circle back to a warning I gave at the beginning. We must continually guard ourselves about putting the emphasis more on what we do than what God has done for us. Prior to that verse that I just read in 1 John, 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. There's that word again, because. 
Pay attention to those small words in Scripture. They're really powerful. We love because he first loved us. The emphasis on what God is on what God has done. He showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are only able to lift up the cup of salvation in worship because he drank the cup of wrath in our place. We are freed from the bonds of slavery and the power of sin and death because he took our place on the cross. Those are the anchors that we must maintain, we must keep in place against the temptation to put the emphasis on what we do to show our love to God. So I love the Lord. How do we show our love for the Lord? How do we show that it is real? Verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. That man that I mentioned earlier who was laying on the pavement, he is so grateful to be able to walk in the land of the living. He is so grateful that God guided that bullet around his spinal cord and all his vital organs so that today he can walk freely. But when he hears and reads verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living, he's aware that the Bible, when it talks about walking, is not talking necessarily primarily about physical walking. It's referring to the way we live our lives. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Colossians 2, 6 says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Our lives should give testimony to our love for God in our choices, in our actions, in our words. Second is in verse 10. He writes, I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. Johnny Erickson Tata, a, man, a woman who has endured suffering beyond any of what any of us will experience, said that suffering and trial are litmus tests of our love for God. The psalmist, too, believed in the grace and mercy of God even when he was afflicted. He didn't blame God. He didn't demand explanations for his circumstances. He did not run away from God. He simply trusted and believed, believed he held fast to the promises of God. He walked by faith and not by sight, trusting that God is merciful and delights to pour out his love on him. You know, this verse, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted, sounds familiar. It's because Paul quoted it in that great section of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have treasures in jars of clay. We have the treasure of the gospel and fragile bodies walking in a fallen world. Paul likened himself to this psalmist. He was tortured and imprisoned for preaching the gospel Yet he continued to preach about the love of God, notwithstanding his circumstances. The way we respond to suffering, this is hard. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying this is just something that we do when we get up in the morning without thinking about it. But the way we respond to suffering, trial, difficulties, living for God in a broken world, that, I think maybe more than anything else, will testify to the genuineness of our love for God. 
People will stand up and, and ask us to give a reason why we can love God in the midst of all this. We're proclaiming the gospel in the midst of our suffering. And I would suggest a corollary way to this is found in verse 15 where the psalmist writes, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The psalmist prayed for deliverance, right? And God was, God was kind and merciful and brought him out of that dire situation. But he eventually, just like Lazarus, died. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Our lives are precious to God, but even our deaths are. We saw that here in David Dad, who less than two months ago went home with the Lord. He gave us a front row seat on what it means to show love for God, genuine, heartfelt love for God as life ebbed from his body. He didn't fear death. It wasn't the same as dying. And as a result, he was able to demonstrate his love for God by trusting that God had prepared a better body and a far better home for him. Yes, David showed us how to love God under extreme adversity. Third way is prayer. Psalmist says, I will call on the name of the Lord multiple times. He's referring not just to prayers of desperation, but to a life characterized by prayer. In all of life, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or want, adoration, prayers, confession, thanksgiving, asking God for our needs. We love God by praying to the one who can meet us. And lastly, lastly, we demonstrate our love to God in a way that we're going to shortly engage in together. And I'd like to ask the band to come up. The way that this psalm ends is that we demonstrate our love for God through public worship, jointly, together, corporately. Verses 14 and 18, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Our halals, our hallelujah, our praise, our thanksgivings are not something that we do in our own heart. They are not a private affair. They are something that we do as a body. That's one of the reasons we gather together is to give praise to God and to encourage one another by lifting our voices jointly to God who loves us. We express our love back to him as a body of Christ. You know, we shout and jump and pump our fists <coughs> When, a, when, an, when an eagle grabs a ball with a uh, toe-tapping catch on the sideline, we pump our fists because we love the eagles. We should love the Lord. Nothing should outstrip our love for the Lord more than, although it sometimes does. If you love Jesus, you will show it. Not everybody expresses it the same way, I'm not saying that, but there should be a public component to our love for God that happens regularly. In a moment, we're going to reach that point in the service where we, we call it sometimes a responsive worship. That's what we're talking about. We respond to God because of the love that he has shown to us. This is a responsive worship. The song that we're about to sing is essentially a love story about how God has expressed his love to us. Verse 3 especially. And I prayed, I prayed for every one of you that's here today and out there watching online that you, if you have trusted Christ, that this third verse 
would be impactful to you. That you, even though you know the truths of this, that it would sink into you in a new way, that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses understanding. The third verse goes like this. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That should, that's the effect it should have on us. We should scarcely be able to understand the love of God for us. That on the cross, my personal, my own, my sin, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. All of us who have been on the receiving end of such generous, extravagant love, let's now pay our vows of love before the Lord and each other here in this building in the midst of of Downingtown. So together, let's praise the Lord.